Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Was there nothing worth fighting for? We are called to find something in our lives worth fighting for. I'm Blaine Harrison from Mystery Jets, and this is episode seven of our podcast, Things Worth Fighting For. I hope that wherever you're listening to this, you're staying sane, drinking enough water, and managing to have some semblance of a summer holiday. During this slightly surreal time, we're inspired to create a safe space for amazing people from different backgrounds to share stories of activism and to shed some light on some of the biggest conversations of today many of which have inspired the songs on our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. Instead of speaking to you from the usual dark and dingy depths of Mystery Jet studio in London, this week I'm coming to you from the Dordogne region in the southwest of France, a place where I partly grew up. I'd love to say that I've been enjoying time out by stuffing my face full of loads of cheese and rosé or dancing in fields of sunflowers and splashing about in rivers, but the truth is that last week the British government imposed a French quarantine leaving the half a million Brits out here 28 hours to scramble home before the rule kicked in. Needless to say that when I saw we were placed 950th in the queue to get our return tickets changed, I decided that I might as well make myself at home here for a while until things cooled down, and maybe try some of that rosé after all. So this episode of the podcast is going to be a little different, and to make up for having been away for a couple of weeks, we've decided to make this a bumper edition, kind of like the EastEnders omnibus used to get on a Sunday afternoon featuring not one, but two interviews with a couple of amazing guests. And the theme of today's episode is also a bit of a big one, because we're going to be taking a close look at mental health and identity in the age of social media. If you're like me, and hearing sounds like these first thing in the morning makes you want to bury your head under the pillow and go back to sleep, then you're listening to the right podcast. The study of sound perception goes as far back as the 19th century, when the Russian psychologist Ivan Pavlov observed his dog would drool at the sound of a bell signalling his mealtime, before dinner was even being served. 
In modern day scenarios, the beeps, dings and whistles of everyday consumer technology are essentially expertly crafted auditory cues which trigger neurological impulses in our brains, prompting behavioural responses or actions often at a subconscious level. Intrigue. Surprise. Excitement. Ah, but I turn off my notifications actually, so... Well, even if that sounds like you, my research elves inform me that on average, smartphone users check their screens up to 150 times per day, scrolling through the equivalent of an Eiffel Tower's worth of Instagram posts. There's even a disorder, nomophobia, based on definitions outlined in the DSM-4, the go-to diagnostic manual used by clinicians for the classifications of mental disorders across the globe, which attributes the feeling of panic and social anxiety to the fear of not having a working mobile phone. So just what is it about these expensive lumps of plastic that we just can't get enough of? I would argue that with social media apps, we get a taste of how substance dependencies might feel. With every like or comment, we get a sense of validation, a shot of that feel-good stuff, a dopamine hit, and when we get it, we want more of it. The problem is that most of the time, social media can feel like one giant popularity contest of who can shout the loudest, who's got the most followers, or who won tickets to a secret gig by that artist you really love. Regardless of time of day, picking up our phones can often open up an endless scroll of holidays we're not on, bodies we'll never have, parties we're not at, diets we're not eating, relationships we're not in. And this naturally has a huge influence over our self-worth. Because the truth is that for many of us, our social media stories are like highlight reels of us living our best lives, times we look great, our wins and achievements which we want to show the world. The trouble is, we compare our behind-the-scenes with everyone else's highlight reels. And yes, of course it was happening before with TV and magazines, but now, algorithms developed by boffins in Silicon Valley allow for this content to be directly targeted at you and sculpted around your personal experience. Rates of anxiety have soared in young people over the past 15 years, but tests show that two out of the nine factors found to cause anxiety are actually not in our biology. They're found in the way that we live. As well as our natural physical needs, food, shelter, fresh air, snuggles, we have psychological needs to feel like we belong, to feel valued and that our lives have meaning and purpose. And we've become a lot worse at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs, with the result leaving us feeling empty on the inside. So where does this hollow feeling come from? Going back to the days of early man, to our ancestors on the African savannah, they weren't faster or bigger than the animals they took down, but they worked as a tribe. That was our superpower as a species. Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. We're living at the first point in our history as humans where we've disbanded our tribes and we're lonelier than ever. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In recent years, social media has become tightly wound up with identity politics and particularly arguments around the supposedly widening generation gap with under-25s increasingly becoming targets for disparaging opinions from older generations, accusations that they're more interested in selfies and cute cat videos than reading books, spending time in nature, or going out and getting jobs. In retaliation, platforms like 4chan and TikTok have spawned memes and viral catchphrases like OK Boomer, adopted by so-called Gen Z to dismiss outdated attitudes associated with people born in the baby boomer years immediately following the Second World War. Typically, these are used as a retort to perceived resistance to things like use of technology, climate change denial and marginalisation of minority groups. But yeah, I suppose the moral of the story is that digital ageism runs both ways. I'm in my 30s, so my generation is sort of sandwiched between the two. We used to be called Gen Y, but apparently now, if you were born in the 80s, you're in the millennials' catchment zone, which I despise. Yes, we reminisce about the age of innocence before dial-up and what that offered, but also have the privilege of being smartphone literate and make full use of the tools that offers. The way I see it, social media isn't going anywhere fast. If anything, it's becoming cleverer and more finely tuned around us each year. I know this makes me sound like a massive hippie, but what I think we need to do is get better at carving a little more time out of each day to look into ourselves at the part of us which is dependent on it and panders to it. That insecurity which makes us take down something we're excited to share the dark side of us which looks at a picture of a happy family and wonders why ours doesn't look like that. Instead of getting stuck in this passive-aggressive status war, we need coping strategies so that when we have our low days and our self-esteem is in the gutter, we can call it out and know what to do to make us feel better, as opposed to viewing our anxieties as a chemical malfunction or a glitch in our inbuilt software. Maybe it's our bodies sending us a signal. And rather than ignoring these signals or trying to dampen or bury them, perhaps we need to listen to them. Because maybe they're telling us something that we really need to hear. At the time of writing this, I was following 2,230 accounts on social media. To be fair, a good couple hundred of those are probably middle-aged men posting photos of Radiohead gear porn or Spinal Tap memes. But I probably couldn't tell you who half of the others are. Each Christmas, I'm the turkey that deletes all my social media, only to reinstall it again halfway through dry January when I'm missing my daily dose of FOMO. But surely there's a more meaningful and fulfilling way to cut down on screen time and log back in to a sense of natural well-being. In Japan, Shinrin-yoku is the mindfulness practice of forest bathing. The idea of forest bathing is that if humans go back into nature and spend more time where they came from, it will help reduce our blood pressure, heart rates and our overall stress and anxiety levels. As with early man in the African savannah, for about 99.9% of the existence of humans, we've existed in nature. 
And only in the last 0.01% have we lived in technological and urban environments. It's a shot in the dark, but maybe the Japanese forest bathers are onto something. Earlier on, I mentioned that on average, we check our phones 150 times per day. But if we look at it another way, it would seem that these lumps of plastic depend on us far more than we depend on them. What I'm talking about has been referred to by some as the greatest socio-economic experiment in human history, and its name is surveillance capitalism. Surveillance capitalism is the modern-day business model in which everything we do, from the moment we wake till the moment we turn out the bedroom light and doze off, is tracked, analysed and monetized by consumer technology. So how does this work? Well, just about every app you download is actually harvesting all your private browsing data, or cookies, and selling it on to third-party goliaths like Facebook and Google, as well as private advertisers and even politicians, who then analyse and use it for targeted marketing to manipulate our emotions, voting decisions and purchasing. Today, these entities know more about us than our own mothers do. If all of this sounds like one giant stoner conspiracy theory, or like I'm just reading the script from an episode of Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror, then please feel free to tune out now and listen to something else. But I think it's in our interest to know and understand this. Google knows when you're on your period. Facebook knows when you or your partner is pregnant. And your Fitbit knows when you're having sex. They know about every old flame that you look up, every financial transaction you make. They even know about every health issue, fantasy and fear that you research. Surveillance capitalism feeds on every aspect of human experience, using subliminal cues to nudge and herd our behaviour. This digital architecture, which we ourselves have built, has become a giant animal behavioural maze in which we are the rodents. You know when you're talking about a place you'd like to visit, or a record you've been meaning to listen to, and hey presto, the artist tour advert or pop-ups for package holidays to Puglia show up in your newsfeed. Even while writing this intro and researching our up-and-coming guests, my social media feeds became flooded with retweets from related Twitter accounts, which I don't follow, and adverts for Amazon Pride and Trojan condoms. If the former CIA whistleblower Edward Snowden is a credible source to go by, that's because all these devices are recording and transmitting everything we say and do. Despite all her charm, Alexa is not really your friend, and neither is your Google Nest, your Ring doorbell, your Xbox, Android or iPhone. When I was growing up in the late 90s, the image of a CCTV camera was an often seen trope amongst the anti-establishment and teenagers. On t-shirts in Camden Market, in Banksy artworks, on record covers. But as we entered the 21st century, we stepped into a new domain, and what seemed at the time like a semi-farcical vision of a dystopian future has today become a reality of modern life to the point where many of us have invited the cameras into our own homes and lives without even realising we were doing it. And now we're all sort of living inside a version of our very own Truman Show. In her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, the Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff writes, We think we're searching Google, but Google is actually searching us. When we accept privacy policies, we're actually accepting surveillance policies. We're told that if we've got nothing to hide, then we've got nothing to fear. But what they don't tell us is that if we have nothing to hide, then we are nothing. Because everything about us that gives us our unique identities, that gives us our unique spirit, our personality, our freedom of will, our sense of our right to our own futures, those are our inner resources in our private realm. 
an essential element of a flourishing democratic society. The problem is, in this culture, we know these things deep down, but we don't live by them. More and more, we seek happiness in all the wrong places, because we live around machinery which is designed to make us neglect what's important about life. It's like we've been brought up in a kind of psychological junk food, which we know is bad for our souls. We know it doesn't meet our nutritional needs and we feel terrible, but we can't stop ourselves from consuming it. So what's the answer? How do we safeguard our world from transforming into a diaspora of digital zombies scrolling their way into oblivion? One of the ways I engage with the conversations we're exploring on today's episode is through my songwriting. Around the spring of 2018, I was spurred to pick up my guitar after watching a documentary called Hypernormalization, in which the British filmmaker Adam Curtis examines corruption in systems of power by following a thread from geopolitical divides in the 70s through the early development of the internet to the cult of Trump and the present day. Around the same time, I attended a talk at the Southbank Centre by the Canadian author Naomi Klein, in which she discussed her theory of the corporate self. She explained how the phenomenon of people becoming brands had initially come about to regain autonomy in the fight back against corporations in the 80s and 90s, but in time, ultimately resulted in us becoming disassociated from each other and basically lonelier than ever. In juxtaposing both these sources, I saw a different perspective on our relationship with technology and the detrimental effect I'd seen social media have on our mental health. The name of that song was Petty Drone, and you'll get a chance to hear it in its entirety at the end of part two of this episode. Our first guest on today's bumper edition of Things Worth Fighting For is a model, influencer, writer, and the founder of Fruitcake magazine, an award-winning LGBTQ publication focusing on queer excellence, Jamie Windust. Although we've been looking at the dark side of social media on this episode, it can also act as a kind of portal into new worlds and provide a safe space to discover communities of people who share our experiences. Jamie writes regularly about the positive role social media plays in inclusivity for publications like Gay Times and The Metro, and is an inspiring public speaker and advocate for trans and non-binary rights. We spoke ahead of the release of Jamie's book, In Their Shoes, part memoir and part guidebook to navigating non-binary life in the digital age. Although I wasn't organised enough to ask for an advanced copy, Jamie was wonderfully open in talking to me about some of the funniest and most poignant experiences which inspired their book. From pronouns and passports to being mistaken for Boy George by Uber drivers. Unlike some of the episodes in this series, which were recorded face-to-face before global pandemic times, my conversation with Jamie took place through a screen, and they kindly recorded our chat at their end too. So thanks, Jamie. Okay, congratulations for making it all the way through another one of my opening rambles. Here comes part one of Things Worth Fighting For, episode number seven. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and I'll meet you out in the smoking area at the interval. Okay, amazing. So um, I, I want to I want to dive straight in, if I may. I've got about a gazillion mm-hmm. questions for you. So 
I'd love to know about growing up. Whereabouts are you originally from? I'm originally from uh, Dorchester in Dorset. So, like, southwest, about 10 minutes from the sea. It's a very cliched, like, rural, very just kind of like market town. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Very British. I suppose leading on from there, I'd love to talk about you know, your your identification. So you were born assigned male at birth, but you identify as non-binary. So that's mm-hmm. a gender which is neither exclusively male or female and you use they, them pronouns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was interesting because I think growing up, I never... What I've, no- what I've realised now is I didn't actually have the access or awareness to the information around gender identity through kind of my education within school, but also just kind of growing up through representation or through the media, never really saw that kind of divergence in discussion around gender. So I was kind of always like, oh, I'm just an effeminate gay man. Like, that's that's just what it is. And then it kind of really took a shift at around 16, 17, when I started using fashion and kind of makeup to explore more of who I was and kind of have more fun with it. And that was kind of a catalyst almost to me starting to think about it a bit further. And the media kind of describe it as the trans tipping point, right. which was about like 2014, 15. So there was a lot of more discussion within the media around trans issues and it kind of started me thinking about it and then I moved to London at 18 and that was kind of the real you arrived yeah it was the real change like I really kind of was like I've got autonomy not just kind of in my living situation but I've I actually can really just decide everything that I do now and it was kind of literally I remember it was like two months after I moved to uni I was like I I found out more and learned more about transness and uh, gender nonconformity and being non-binary and I was just like oh do you know what this actually is just like really really fits mm. and it was just quite a nice kind of natural progression for me what do you think created that trans tipping point that you mentioned there was a lot of discussion within the media that is that's sadly kind of still going on a lot of kind of hysteria and a lot of just movement around transness in a way that we'd not seen before mm. you know high profile trans people on the, on the tv there was a lot of kind of news reports and documentaries coming out about trans people that just weren't accurate and i think what we saw in that moment was trans representation being increased vastly but not in a good way and then what we saw is the trans people that is impacting actually speaking out and i guess that was kind of the beginning of this kind of what we're still in now of this kind of awful back and forth between what the media say trans people are like and what actually trans people say we are like and exist as. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. For the wider population, we are in this huge learning curve in terms of the education and perhaps the awareness around gender identification. Perhaps it's important to clarify there is a difference between sex and gender, isn't there? Yeah, so sex, I mean, both sex and gender are not binary concepts there's you know there's no one way for sex to be categorized into male or female but um sex is kind of more looking at biology it's looking at sex characteristics it's looking at chromosomes but again there's so many ways that your chromosomes and your genetic makeup can be formed that does not limit you to just male and female yes intersex people and then gender is more kind of how you feel and kind of more of a internal and i guess emotional aspect is you know everyone has the gender 
I think a lot of people think that it's only trans people that express their gender mm. in different ways. But actually, you know, cisgender, so that's people that aren't trans, cisgender people express their gender identity in a way yeah. that is unique to them. Everyone does it. I, I found it really interesting to hear you talk about gender as being something that we perform. Mm. I, I find that fascinating because, I mean, I suppose, I mean, as a singer, as an artist, I strongly identify with this notion of putting on an outfit, so becoming a more extrovert sort of superhero version of myself when I walk out on stage, which, you know, I suppose I would say is, is almost like putting on a mask. But mm -hmm. I think for someone like you, you know, you dress so beautifully with so much care and, and attention and expression. In a way, it must almost be a more like a 24-7 thing. You know, you're, you're always channeling that s s sort of a more extrovert per part of your personality, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I think it's... Um for me, like you said about the mask, for me, like when I started looking into fashion and looking into to makeup and kind of realising that there actually were no limits on it, it was kind of almost the antithesis of a mask. It actually made me able to reveal more of myself. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people see, especially with makeup and, they, and fashion, they see it as something to kind of cover and, and hide. Whereas for me, it was more of being able to reveal more of who I was. It's definitely something that, you know, now I don't think about. I just wear what I want to wear and I, I feel comfortable in doing that. But at the end of the day, everything is still a performance. I think performance is a word that often people think is, um, it means it's for other people. I'm not performing for other people and mm. it's not like, and it's also not fake. Like everybody does, we have a version of ourselves that we feel comfortable sharing with the world. Mm. And, you know, you have yours and I have mine and we all have our own individual one and I think that's you know the joy of gender a lot of the time we don't get to discuss the joy of actually what it is to kind of experiment and play with gender because it's so often uh, demonized but yes. that for me is really the, the fun bit <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean in, in terms of growing up were there role models that you looked up to in terms of you know shaping your quest to finding your own gender identity or expressing your, your gender? Mm, I think for me, you know, representation at that time was really poor in terms of trans people. There was a lot of, like, white cis gay men on, on in the media and on the TV, and I kind of had that. But for me, th there wasn't ever any one person that I was like, I idolise you. But I think, quite interestingly, I found a lot of my inspiration through music. So I found it through kind of, like really getting into the 80s kind of music scene mm. really looking into that world women were really coming to the foreground mm. kind of a lot of social causes and a lot of social rights were being channeled through creativity and that's kind of what I latched onto is seeing how politics and social movements would, were expressed through people's art and through people's music so I suppose that in a way that leads us on to your activism which I'm hugely inspired by and fascinated by so one of the reasons we started this podcast is because we wanted to signal boost and amplify voices of people like you who are using their platform to fight for social change and in spring 2019 you launched a petition to campaign for non-binary gender non-conforming gender fluid and intersex people the right to self-identify on legal documents such as passports as well as in institutions such as the HMRC 
and our beloved NHS. I think I'm right in saying that the petition ran for six months and received over 20,000 signatures. Obviously, that's a huge achievement in itself. I mean, how satisfied were you with the government's response? Their response was... Well, it was quite, you know, it was quite a long time ago and their response was quite weak. And we've seen that, you know, now with their movements on trans issues currently, because we're in the process of them releasing their reforms for the Gender Recognition Act in the UK, you know, they take a long time. They really push things back. They delay things a lot. Um, The petition, do you know what, the petition, it was an experience. There's a campaign that has been going on for over 20 years that, for the exact same thing that currently at the moment is kind of waiting to be seen whether or not it goes to the High Court. Mm. On International Non-Binary Day this year, there was a motion in the House of Commons to kind of implement ex-passports. So it's definitely on the radar Mm. within government. I think what's happened because of corona and Brexit, so many issues are just either being ignored or swept under the carpet. So it's... It's difficult to say what's going to happen, but I'm glad that, you know, as of last month, it was actually brought up in the House of Commons. Whether or not the petition had any sway on that, I don't really know. I don't really, to be honest, I don't really care. It was just right for me to do that. Yeah. I mean, obviously in the US, I know states like Oregon, New York, California, now legally offer an X marker on Mm. British passports. I mean, do you think it's been this sort of Brexit saga and all the rest of it that's primarily been the reason for the UK dragging its feet, as opposed to a more institutional conservatism, if that makes sense? I think it's I think it's both. I think they definitely go hand in hand, you know, Mm. with the kind of conversations around Brexit and around, you know, we've had two elections, around the kind of those issues, they promote this idea of conservatism within society mm. and they promote this idea, you know, we've seen over the past two years that hate crimes are rising, all of these kind of very right-wing feelings, even now with corona, you know, you've got people protesting that they have to wear a mask mm. or, you know, all of these kind of quite bizarre right-wing... And anti-vaxxers gr- and people. Yeah, like people kind of feeling emboldened and I guess entitled again to, to feel like their government is actually or our government now, is validating these opinions. But I think it is also because, you know, in their response initially when the ex-passports went to the High Court two years ago, their response was it's too small a percentage of the population to change such a massive part of a passport. And I think it also comes down to that they just don't really care. They don't really see it as an issue. They don't see it as a major thing for them to to have to change. But what's ironic about that is, despite the fact that trans people make up such a such a small percentage of the population, mm. we're in the headlines every single day. So it's like, well, you obviously care about us a bit. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, I read that Stonewall estimates that 600,000 non-binary and trans people live in Britain today. I mean... That's that's actually quite a lot of people. Mm, absolutely. It's a, it is a lot of people. And it's also like the thing that I think often people think about ex-passports or people who want to identify outside of this binary is that it's just for us. Mm. But actually expanding gender in a way 
legally, but also just in people's minds, impacts everyone. It allows everybody to be a bit freer. You know, it yeah. allows cis people to be able to feel feel more relaxed or feel more content in being able to express their gender identity mm-hmm. in a way that they might not have been able to before. So this idea that it's only going to benefit trans people isn't also isn't true. Absolutely. I'm also interested in the Lend Your Voice campaign. So every year, I know huge numbers of LGBTQ plus people in the world flee persecution on account of their sexual orientation or gender expression. Obviously, in places like some of the Caribbean islands, in Singapore, many African, Middle Eastern countries, queer people are often locked up for indefinite periods of time in detention centres. The UK is currently the only country in Europe not to have a time limit on how long people can be kept in detention. Last year you partnered with the UK LGIG, UK Lesbian and Gay Immigration Group, to raise awareness around this. Could you talk a little bit about the Lend Your Voice campaign? Yeah, it was an experience and it was a real kind of moment to, I think, again, showcase a part of the LGBTQ plus community that is not spoken about often enough. And I think often that intersectionality is forgotten. You know, I think people forget that there are queer people in these in these spaces and they need our voices and they also need our support. And it's more urgent, you know, things like passports can wait. You know, these issues are more urgent. Mm. And it was it was really like eye opening, but also frustrating to know that these atrocities in these detention centres are still happening, despite the fact that, you know, like you just said, all across Europe, there's a time limit on how long you can be held. And the stories really detail the actual kind of institutional problems that they have with queer people and how often people in these situations are asked to prove that they're queer in order to not be sent back to where they're fleeing. And it's, it's just... You know, you can't prove that you're queer. You can't mm. prove that you're... There's no one way, and that falls into very dangerous territory. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there, mm. and I'm glad that that campaign kind of got the recognition that it deserved. Yeah. Absolutely. Hi there. This is the bit in the podcast where you might normally hear an advert for something, but instead of telling you about Squarespace or JDEGS, I just want to have a quick word in your ear to tell you about an amazing organisation called Mermaids UK. Celebrating their 25th year, Mermaids UK are a charity who support young transgender, non-binary and gender diverse children and their families. Starting out as a group of parents who are concerned about how to keep their children safe and happy, they now work passionately to raise awareness about gender non-conformity in young people, providing trans-inclusive training to schools, inclusive residential weekends and a 24-7 crisis line for young people and their families. Uh, The first person I told was my sister, Libby, um, who was very good. She was brilliant. When I told my friends the pretty much all of their responses was that they wanted to know more um, and they wanted me to tell them about you know what being transgender meant one or two comments from one person but the reaction to that was my friends rallied around me and so did all of the teachers that I told and they were amazing that was Liam a member of the Mermaids UK community speaking about the support he got from friends and teachers and dealing with anti-trans comments at school 
Links in the show notes for how to find Mermaids UK on social media, as well as how to donate to this amazing organisation. Thanks for listening. Now let's go back to Jamie Windust. You also wrote a very funny, but also quite heartbreaking article in the Metro last year in response to Boy George casting shade on they, (laughs) them pronouns or trans people using they, them pronouns. Yeah. In the piece, you talked about how someone who'd been actually quite a formative figure in your life growing up was essentially helping normalise this sort of toxic anti-trans rhetoric, which you've been so actively campaigning against. I mean, I think in that article, you articulated yourself incredibly well and and bravely, but that must have felt quite hurtful for you. Yeah, I mean, like I say, like my my inspirations aesthetically as well as, uh, you know, emotionally came from the 80s. So, of course, he had a he had a slight pull there. But I think what maybe what to write that piece was because he and so many other people within the kind of creative industries like to kind of almost profit off of this idea of androgyny and ambiguity when it comes to gender, but then have such strict rules when it comes to policing other people's. Mm. And it was kind of disheartening in a way. You know, I, like I say, I don't have huge... I don't have, like, an idol, apart from, no offence, but maybe Harry Styles. But, <laughs> um, so, it, you know, I wasn't, like, heartbroken, but it was just frustrating in a way, kind of, like I say, ironic, because it's like, well, you've not just made a career off this, but, like, part of your image and part of your kind of vision, essentially, is that you've given a lot of hope to a lot of queer and trans people by kind of not caring about this um, strict rule of how you should look, and then suddenly you're telling, you're policing people on pronouns. It was just kind of like, that piece was kind of a bit of a a tongue-in-cheek because I often get compared to him quite a lot. Mm. But he's a, he's a funny one. He's got a lot of skeletons, hasn't he? He does. <laughs> he does. I mean, it, I suppose in a, in a bit of an ironic plot twist, you also shared a Twitter video last year of you getting into <laughs> an Uber, and in the clip, the driver says, this is for you, and puts on Karma Chameleon. Indeed. Um, which, which came first? I mean, because Boy George re- responded to your story, didn't he? He did. That's kind of why I, I was asked to write the piece because he called me like, he called me his like flower, which I thought was really weird. Yeah, <laughs> that, that happened. And then um, it was just really bizarre. I think the Uber driver thought that I was a tribute act, which I thought was hilarious because I was yeah. probably just going to like, the shops or something that made me laugh because all the things that I do you know the writing the whatever and then um, I'd have people come up to me and being like are you are you the person from the Uber yeah, yeah, like, yeah. and unfortunately yes is that, that is that is I <laughs> <laughs> I love that I mean I suppose in terms of social media you have a huge platform already and it's growing all the time which is amazing I've heard you say that growing up you used social media I suppose like as a diary entry, more like a public journal. But in time, obviously your platform's grown hugely. Has it been interesting kind of navigating that transition from it being a a sort of public journal to being more of a business tool? Absolutely. I think when I first started it, coming up to like six, seven years ago, it was really an outlet for me to find that community that I didn't have physically. At the beginning, I felt kind of a little bit embarrassed about it, but now I don't feel any, any shame for it at all. But it's become more of a business tool. You know, I do a lot of, you know, I'm a signed model. So a lot of my work 
is now moving through social media campaigns and that type of thing, especially during lockdown. Like the only real work that continued for me was writing and uh, doing social media posts and kind of sponsored content. And I think there's a lot of mixed opinions on that. There's a lot of kind of feelings on that. But I think I am not stupid. I know often that brands want to appear some kind of way by using queer talent. So therefore I try my best to actually educate these people. I go in and do consultancy with them before and after I work with them if they are if they allow me. <laughs> and you know, it, I try and make it as mutually beneficial as possible because I think there's nothing wrong with it. You know, representation is a great thing. My angle on it is that I need to make sure that I'm going if I'm going into these spaces as a privileged trans person, mm. you know, as a white trans able-bodied, slim person, I need to be going in and actually just, like, keeping that door open, showing that, you know, transness isn't just kind of my whiteness, and then making sure that if they do want to continue working with trans people that they realise the diversity within our community. Yeah. I mean, I suppose within this sort of sphere of representing diversity, quote-unquote, there is inevitably this sort of box ticking aspect to it. Are you conscious of when you're being hired for things to tick these sort of imaginary inclusivity boxes when brands want to work with you? Are you able to sort of spot that from from a little way off? Very much so, because I think I can notice it when, for example, if I'm chosen for a campaign, you know, I always ask who else are you who who else are you working with, and they kind of show me who else they've got on the campaign. And it'll be, you know, everyone will be ticking a box. And I think, in a way, that's not necessarily a bad thing. As long as you are receptive and listen to these people if they have certain accessibility needs. What I find frustrating is when I am booked for a job and then my manager or me or, we, you know, we kind of go forward with these kind of... Here are some things that Jamie will need on set. Jamie uses they, them pronouns. Like, please try and avoid any kind of separate gendered spaces, X, Y, Z. And then they just, like, do not listen at all. And that's when I get frustrated because it's like, you cannot just use my image and not change any part of your business or your production. That's why I sometimes find it so difficult working within the fashion industries because often it's so categorised in binary male and female and it's like yeah. well this is not correct I mean earlier on in this series I spoke with Florence Given who I know is a big fan of yours and a friend I think mm. love yeah. Florence yeah and we so we talked about I suppose pe- the people pleasing aspect of being an influencer and I think in a strange way this is quite connected to being from a minority group background you know for me particularly speaking as, as a disabled person because we're so used to fighting for equality so when actually when doors start opening of their own accord it can be quite strange to adjust to that because you've been fighting for so many years to kind of have your voice heard and then suddenly people start coming to you and there's a sort of shift with that you know as someone with a very visible public profile do you struggle with the emotional labor of saying no to things 100 percent. when i first um because i've been kind of doing this very loosely for about nearly you know, two, two and a half years now. And I remember in the in the first year, I was very much a people pleaser. I would say yes to everything. I would go to everything. I would go to all of the events. I would do all of the free work. And it was kind of 
like you say, it was because often and for so long I'd not had those opportunities because of the way I looked or because of being trans. And suddenly people want to work with you and you're like, yes, okay, fine. You know, that was a very difficult time because there was a lot of emotional labour involved there, but it also meant that I was actually, in those first few months and, you know, year, I was ignorant to a lot of situations. I was very much looking at situations with only my outcome at hand, which, looking back now, I realise is not in any way beneficial. So, yeah, it was was, was definitely that, and I always say, like, especially with minority talent or marginalised groups, there's this feeling that when larger organisations or brands want to work with you, that they expect you to be eternally grateful. Mm. And it's actually like, no, No. (laughs) that's that's not not correct. If anything, it's the other way around. Yeah. So you're you're also part of Jamila Jamil's I Weigh community. Mm. I lo- I really enjoyed watching the Instagram live which you filmed together during lockdown. How did you become part of I Weigh? Did she initially reach out to you? It was kind of a social media kind of relationship, if that makes sense. You know, like mm. we kind of engaged them on social media. I kind of really loved what they were doing, um, and then I was invited to one of their events that was hosted by Monroe Bergdorf and it was like a really lovely brunch event talking about mental health and kind of just opening up the conversation and it was a really nice kind of like round table discussion and then kind of since then I've been really able to form a relationship with the team that work on iWay with Jamila. I, I find it quite rare often to find groups of people or individuals that actually care and I think Jamila and Iway really have that care within them to know that what they're doing is right. They really understand when to allow people to speak, when to step back, when to just give people a platform. And I love that. And also just kind of on a career sense, like the opportunities that I, I've been able to have with them through presenting, like I'm about to film um, a series with them. Uh, Amazing. It's really... It's really fun to be able to have a platform that speaks to what you want to talk about, but also can you enjoy doing it from a career sense and from a work sense. It's really great to have that hybrid. Hmm. I mean, I suppose talking about I weigh and, well, and self-image really, I mean, as a disabled person, I've, I've always been very conscious of how I hold myself. And I think for a lot of people with disabilities, standing tall is really the only way of making sure that you'll be taken seriously by certain aspects of society, Mm -hmm. certain factions of society, especially growing up. And something that really strikes me about you is that you hold yourself with this very strong poise. You know, I think you come across as very empowered. And do you think you've always been like that? Or is it something that you've perhaps developed as a means of commanding respect? Absolutely the latter, yes. During school, I was always that person that was like, at kind of parents' evening or reports, it would be like, Jamie needs to speak more, or Jamie doesn't say anything. You know, I was always very, very shy growing up. And now I think it's it's definitely a coping mechanism to deal with the world, like 100%. Like, again, I think often everybody has that. Everybody has ways in which they put on a brave face, quite a lot of the time but I think what I try and do especially through social media is just be as honest and real as possible Mm. and that is how I 
manage that personally for me, as well as kind of, you know, therapy and making sure that I have an open dialogue with friends of just kind of making sure that I'm not always actually just like switched on to being, you know, empowered or brave. I One of the worst things I hate is when people say that I'm brave because it's um, maybe you should help me change the world so I don't have to be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those yeah. situations. I'm a product of the world I live in. Mm, absolutely. You are incredibly frank, as you've said. You are, you are so open with your audience. As your audience has grown, have you felt a shift in terms of that? Do you worry about showing too much of yourself? Absolutely. I think with social media, often I, it's very, very easy to forget that you actually, you know, I have the population of a city in the palm of my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean that in a boastful way. I mean that in quite a, it's, you know, it's quite scary often mm. to think that you have that many people that you can access. So 100%, you know, recently I've thought that and I've kind of felt worry about that. But I also know that, you know, it goes back to when I was when I was younger. Like, that's why I use social media and that's why I have such a place for it is because there are so many people on there that, you know, quite a lot of people I've never met, but we have, we speak every day and they check in on me and we check in on each other. And it's like a really loving relationship. Obviously, there's a lot of hate. Obviously, there's a lot of abuse. But I think I'm actually quite able to take that on the chin. And Mm. I don't really ever engage with it. I mean, in terms of the link between social media and mental health, I suppose, I've heard you say that one way you discipline your use of social media is by deleting it when you go to bed and then re-downloading it in the morning when you're working again. I mean, that implies that you've you've actually got a very real sense of self-discipline. Yeah, I try my best. I, I mean, I, I lockdown has changed that slightly, but mm. um, definitely before I would kind of actually kind of going off what Florence Givens says, um, you know, she did an amazing post about stop scrolling in the mornings. It's invaluable advice because it's like, this is actually incredibly detrimental to your mental health. As soon as you wake up, you're const- you're just taking in so much information. Not all of it necessary. And yeah, so I just try and make sure, especially now that social media has turned more into a business tool and more of kind of like essentially my job, I limit its time, like you would with any job. I make sure that, you know, certain points of the day, especially if I'm writing, um, and, like, when I was writing my book, like, I made sure that I just... I actually just switched my whole phone off. I was like, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> do you... I mean, when you want to get get away from apps and your phone, do you have any particular routines or ways which you find helpful to maintain positive mental health? I, I know... I, I mean, I hate the word mindfulness, but for me... Music, I suppose, is my medicine. That's the place that I scuttle off to and and use to escape. Mm. Do, do you it, have? You do it very well. These, <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Do you, do you have any of these? Um, uh, yeah. The, I suppose these routines or safe spaces that you can disappear off to when you do want to reconnect yourself. Yeah, and it sounds really funny because I've never been this type of person. But this year, I've started getting into like properly actually seeing the benefits mentally of exercise and I was never a person to kind of go to the gym or that type of thing and I was going through therapy at the start of the year and my therapist was like why don't you just try it see what happens Mm. and I tried it and I was just I just got really into it in a way that I was like this is actually really you know I wasn't there for any physical change I was there for like 
mental changes mm. and mental health, like the ability to just relax, focus on me. It's a nice distraction, but it also just calms you down. It makes it, it just made me feel great, and I kind of found that difficult during lockdown because obviously it was all stopped. But I'm getting back into it now slowly, and it's it's a really it's just a nice little me time to be honest. Pop, yeah, pop a podcast on and just go for a run, and it's just really nice. Yeah, I really relate to that. I mean, it's been difficult for me because I'm I'm a very keen swimmer, and obviously you know pools and places have been shut during lockdown and I've always definitely used swimming as a way of clearing my head and I I can really relate to what you're saying about going to the gym because I often find whatever I'm going through whatever I'm dealing with I always feel better after a swim whenever I get out the other side whatever those problems were they seem so much more manageable and less significant on the other side Mm. then I've often thought about the thing about going to the pool is that you're kind of swimming in everyone's problems you're like (laughs) diving into this pool and you're wading through this sea of people kind of going in there to like wash away all their problems it's quite a funny way of thinking about it just constantly just swimming yeah swimming through emotion that's what you're doing (laughs) exactly then you have to shower it all off (laughs) I think a lot of people perhaps spend I would say even like the first 30 years of their lives on this journey of trying to discover who me is and I think I certainly consider it a privilege that I had a sense of what I wanted to do what I wanted to become at a very young age you know via the privilege of discovering music Mm. do you feel that finding joy in expressing your gender identity at such a young age gave you a massive head start with that as well 100% I think I was thinking of the day actually you know like I I've always been into fashion I've always loved modeling I've always loved it but when I was younger but I always thought it was completely unachievable and unattainable and then actually by exploring my gender identity and finding such you know, my own sense of style. It's been, it's led me to be able to actually do what I, what I want to do. As well as, you know, with writing, like I started writing as about trans issues and I still, I still write about trans issues, but it's allowed me to actually get my foot in the door in places to be able to actually write about things that aren't trans specific. There we go. Trans specific. (laughs) And actually just showcase that I enjoy writing and I'm not too bad at it. Do you know what I mean? Like, there are things that it's like my identity doesn't need to precursor of my skill all the yeah. time. There's a time and a place for it. But, so, you know, it's like when people want to be like, Jamie is a non-binary writer. And it's or like it's, this kind of happens with women. It's like their, their gender identity is often precursor to the, their job. And it's like, mm. well, actually, I'm just a writer. I'm just a speaker. I'm just a, a model. Do you know what I mean? I, I just mm. happen to be trans. Do you feel positive about a time coming where your gender is no longer a precursor to the conversation about what you do? Mm, I think so. I think it's frustrating in a way because I don't know if that will be in my lifetime. Mm. It might sound shocking, but I think, you know, social movements take time. And I think what we're seeing through so many social actions at the moment with Black Lives Matter, with the climate change crisis, the generation below me are really emboldened and blazoned to to just speak their mind in a way that, you know, even my age bracket don't, you know. They are 
carrying the torch incredibly brightly and strongly for these issues. And I think it's generational. I think, you know, my generation have this fairly liberal mindset in certain parts, but I think the generation below us, hopefully it will continue and continue. But there's only so many times that social change can happen without legislative change. So it needs to, they need to go hand in hand. You need to see kind of governments making sure that trans people are protected and the institutions are made for the trans people as well as social change. Do you feel, do you feel like at an educational level, you know, are the wheels turning in terms of the teaching being there for, you know, as you said, the generation coming up behind you? I mean, I know, for example, like when I grew up, when I went to school, I'm a little bit older than you. There wasn't the language around you know, trans visibility wasn't there. But my girlfriend's a little bit younger and when she went to school, there was several trans people in her school or non-binary people in her school. And I, and I know she talks about how seeing people around you whose experience kind of an identity mirrored yours felt like it actually, it felt very markedly different to the environment that I'd grown up in. Mm. Do you feel like at an educational level, the institutions, schools are, you know, teaching students enough about trans issues and I suppose like LGBTQ culture on a wider level. Are they doing that sufficiently enough? Is that change happening? I think personally in my experience, you know, I was in school, I guess like 10 years ago, mm. I was kind of in, in, I guess, in the peak of, of actual school, like 13. There was definitely no education on trans issues. There was kind of same-sex discussions but I think it was very limited because the teachers and the people just didn't know how to have this conversation I think you know we weren't that long out of section 28 which was when promotion of homosexuality was prohibited in schools so there was a lot of inaccuracies with it and I think now you know last year in April the government announced that There'll be new regulations for teaching relationships and sex education in England to include more LGBT-specific lessons and kind of terms and enjoyment through Stonewall. So I think hopefully we will see a change, but essentially at the end of the day, like we're seeing at the moment with a lot of institutions, is it comes down to unconscious bias. Yes. If your teacher is a transphobe, if your teacher is homophobic, then unfortunately those those things can sway the teaching Mm. and, you know, things can change. But I'm glad that new sex and relationships education is coming. I just hope that it will foster an environment where trans people can actually feel safe in school. I mean, earlier on we discussed, obviously, boy George and misgendering. So just darting back to that issue briefly, for the past year or two, narratives around trans awareness have been dominated by these very toxic tweets and sound bites from people like JK Rowling, mm. essentially expressing turf views, which is the acronym is trans exclusionary radical feminist, even with Daniel Radcliffe coming forward and condemning her opinions as bigoted, you know, discriminatory. Even last week, I was sickened to see that I stand with JK Rowling was trending on Twitter. Mm. How indicative do you think her bigoted views are of members of the society at large? When she was making her comments, to be honest, I've never liked, I'm not just being a 
a bitch because I don't like Harry Potter, but I've never really cared for her. She's never been on my radar. And I think what what I find really interesting is, although she does speak for a percentage of the population, absolutely, she had a lot of support, unfortunately. And, the you know, along like I say, around the time that she was speaking, there was a YouGov poll that came out that kind of... It asked the population of all different age groups, different political persuasions. Um, it even kind of looked at how they voted on Brexit. And it asked them about very specific trans issues. And it showed that actually there is far more distrust and lack of support for trans people in the UK as a whole than there is support. That does change with age. And what I thought at that time was her comments are so boring to me I don't understand why we put so much emphasis and this works both positively and negatively when you know when people come out for trans people and people don't why we put so much emphasis on celebrity endorsements yes because although sometimes it can be good look at Jamila she actually puts action into what she's saying she's not just putting out kind of statements of support and then just going back to her life she's actually acting on upon it and there are there are lots of people with platforms that do that but sometimes you know with Daniel Radcliffe obviously it's great to have that vocalized but I'm like you you know you've only said this in response to the woman that gave you a career yeah no shade um <laughs> if you're listening yeah. Mr Radcliffe um but like it feels very PR-y when, when celebrities do make statements about trans people. So I personally don't care about her, but I know that her her words, unfortunately, do have weight. I mean, ironically, were you, were you in a Harry Potter movie? Am I getting that right? I absolutely was. And <laughs> um, it was the worst thing that's ever happened. <laughs> right. Did, it, did you walk off set? I did walk off set, and then I got embarrassed, um, so I came back. Because I, I kept getting told off for being late, and I also wasn't. We weren't allowed off. It was on the Fantastic Beasts film, um, and we were like not allowed our phones or anything. We just sat in a tent all day, and I was like, I don't care about the two hundred pound. I'm leaving. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I have a, a tenuous connection with um, my dear friend J.K. Rowling. So so so. I mean, I suppose prior to J.K. Rowling a name popping up all over the place in regards to the pronouns debate, misgendering, was Jordan B. Peterson. Are you familiar with Jordan Peterson? He's a Canadian psychologist and professor, very, very divisive figure. Mm. Um, oh, OK, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. OK. He's been on, he's been, he's been on Russell Brand's, um, like, podcast and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose the difference with Jordan P. Peterson, it stemmed in this much wider conversation of claiming the freedom of speech and argument as dictated by the law. I mean, he's a very divisive figure because although he was he was boycotted by the likes of Cambridge University, he originally had a place to come and lecture at Cambridge and then they since withdrew the invitation after this pronouns debate got fired up. But then interestingly, he's, he's also been quite embraced by quite traditionally anti-establishment figures on the left, such as Russell Brand, as well as people on the... I suppose you could say alt-right, quote-unquote. I mean, why do you think people like that, essentially intellectual cis males, see it as their place to, to step in and wade into debates about gendering? And I'm also thinking about Katie Hopkins. Uh, I'm also thinking about Pierce Morgan's rant about penguins on Good Morning Britain. 
this just strikes me as it's pure hate speech. Why do you think it is that trans issues have become sort of front and centre in these in these cultural wars? There's lots and lots of different parts of this problem, but I think going back to what you're saying about Jordan, looking at the kind of correlation, I guess, between why it's people like um, Lawrence Fox and um, Piers and David Starkey and all these men, like very cis white, Tradition, straight men, yeah, like very traditional, heteronormative, patriarchal men. And I think it genuinely is because they have never been told that they are wrong, mm. often, and they, they uphold the status quo. They are the people in this society that, that unfortunately do portray and emulate the most privilege. So therefore, when you have a small group or, you know, it doesn't matter the size, when you have a group of people telling them, actually, can you change this? Or can you use these words? Their entitlement, again, there we go, entitlement, just, it just goes through the roof. Yeah. And they don't understand. And I think it comes from that idea of them being told they're never wrong. And also, I spoke about this in my... Um, I'm just going to drop this. My TED talk. Um, transphobia and this... Even this kind of lack of use of pronouns is is linked to the rise in far right ideology and mm. white supremacy, white supremacy and fascism and all of these things are completely intertwined. Because you know, if you look at prominent turf groups, they support groups that are for anti-immigration or they support groups that are Islamophobic or you know. Mm. They're anti-Black Lives Matter. They are all interconnected. Um, Anti-abortion. Absolutely, which is ironic. So um, there's so many interconnections with it all that I think often what you'll see is you'll see, you know, Piers Morgan having the same... He'll have the same views on pronouns. He'll then have have very right-wing tendencies. And it's like, well, they're all linked. And that's the most frustrating thing about it. Earlier on, you mentioned that last year you gave a TEDx talk in London. Mm. I'd love to speak to you about that experience. I mean, as as a public speaker, that's that's about as big as it gets. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's huge. Was that a space that you always had your sights on getting to? It was life changing for many reasons, but I think it was just a just under a year ago that I got asked because you have to be kind of asked which is really weird. So they, yeah. they came and met me in central London last August, September, and were like, we'd love for you to speak. And I was just like, mm, <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, really? No, I, I said yeah. I said yes, but I, again, because I don't really think about things, I was just like, yeah, sure. But it honestly is one of the, like, the most difficult, but in the best way, like the hardest things I've ever done because you have to essentially spend about three, three and a half months working with the team, creating a script, rehearsing, learning it off by heart, you know, that, that whole process. And there's such an amazing team to work with. Mariam, who is the director, truly just, like, changed the way that I see myself as a speaker and made the process not just brilliant on a skill set level, but incredibly inclusive. I had lots of chats with her about you know, because it was TEDx London Women's. So, you know, we, we had a lot of conversations about that and sh- she was incredibly brilliant in just being like, 
you deserve to go on the stage. Your message needs to be, to be shared. Like, and we will support you in that 100%. And I cannot thank her enough for that. Hmm. I mean, I've never, you know, public speaking and panels, these sorts of things, quite new to me, really. And I've never done a TEDx talk. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's just incredible. But earlier this year, we put on our own panel event at the YouTube space in London, discussing issues like inclusivity and the environment. And actually, right before we went on, I had a sort of a mini panic attack. Actually, I'm not going to belittle it. I had a panic attack mm. and I actually locked myself in a bathroom and my band were amazing and they came and they they talked me down from it. They brought me some water. I suppose what it was was this pressure of having to, of having to channel this very outward per, part of my personality, stepping up on stage, being strong. Mm. And I think, you know, I, I would say... A, possibly identify as more of an introvert it can be quite terrifying I guess it's this sort of fight or flight thing Mm -hmm. but then as soon as I was up there and opened my gob and started (laughs) talking you know I just started jabbering away and I was totally fine Mm -hmm. but I mean do you do you ever get that kind of crippling fear oh absolutely before before Ted I was literally like I hate anything with anticipation so to be told in August that you're doing a talk in December for me was like obviously amazing but I like for my anxiety for my mental health it really just like set me on edge because I was like oh god I've got a like I've got a countdown such a like, huge moment for like yeah. so long before the actual talk I was just pacing like mm-hmm. fully pacing just like unable like fully kind of like you were like I was just sat in my dressing room and I was just like um what's going on <laughs> yeah. um and then literally as I was being introduced on stage, I said to one of the amazing volunteers from TED, I was like, you need to put some tissues, like, in my sleeve right now. Right. And she's like, OK, OK, fine. And then, because I was... That was my one of my biggest worries, that I was going to cry. Yeah. Um, and then I did. Um, mm. Which is actually fine. They did a, did a marvellous cut um, of that. But, yeah, I think just all of that anticipation and exertion just came out on stage but I did I think I did a good a good job I didn't mess I didn't forget anything I felt really empowered by it and like I said it was something to just remember to be like fuck I did that (laughs) I mean as you said there was there was this I I, I've watched it back I watched it back um the other day and Mm. there is this incredible very tender moment I'd say where it almost feels like the emotion is overwhelming you and you know as a viewer I know you don't like the word brave but I I really did feel for you in that moment Mm. but you you know you you bounced back amazingly and you smashed it I I suppose for me the equivalent would have been when when we played Glassbury for the first time I think I was 21 and I fully wept Mm. on stage in front of like 10,000 people I mean how did you in that moment how did you pull yourself back from that and you know, turn around and, and carry on because that's... You came back and you, you absolutely smashed it. Was it going to be surreal? Like, I'm sure when you're on stage crying, like, it's... You're just like, what? what like, why am I... A, why am I crying? And B, like, this would just never happen in your life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Normally, like, a thousand people wouldn't just see me crying. So I think what pulled me back round was just knowing that I'd worked so hard and for so long on making sure that I knew this talk in and out. 
I've been quite stubborn with myself and they'd asked me if I wanted any prompts on stage because you could have like prompts at the bottom um, yeah. at the front of the stage and I was like no I know it I'm gonna do it mm-hmm. and I was like remember that remember that you've worked for a long time on this and also it's kind of the crowd reaction when I started crying I mean they made me cry more because they were all cheering but I was just mm-hmm. like come on and then I did it but I mean and you did you did it was it's so it's, did you ever find this like it's so frustrating in a way to spend so long doing something that is just like 10 minutes long and then you're like right and like when I when I left the stage I was like what do I do now yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I've Absolutely. done it. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. I know exactly what you mean. You also did your first speaking tour last year. Am I right in saying? Yeah, yeah. I did um, a little university speaking tour, which was really fun. Universities, I think, are really great to speak at because, like, there's lots of in the in the least patronising way. There's lots of people that were like me that were like, I want that. I'm beginning to find out who I am, hmm. um, and that was really fun. Yeah, I'd love to do more. I mean, who knows in, in this world that we're in at the moment, but I do have a couple of potential speaking bits coming up at the end of the year, so hopefully people are anticipating that universities will be back open and be able to host things again, but I am, I'm itching to get back into it, definitely. So obviously skipping forward a little bit, your book, In Their Shoes, mm-hmm. is coming out on the 21st of October. Is that still the date? Indeed, yes. Yeah, still going yes. with that one. First off, congratulations. That's an incredible accomplishment. And I love the title. Thank the title you. is amazing. <laughs> it's really funny. My sister, I have to attribute her with it because we were, it was at Christmas and it was like two in the morning and she just came into my bedroom because we'd been like thinking about names. She just said in their shoes and I was like, oh, I'll write it down. So I do have to attribute it to her because um, I think that was honestly one of the hardest parts coming up with the name. Yeah. So difficult, um, especially for a first book. I'm excited. It's kind of my journey through navigating my life, navigating different areas of my life, so fashion, relationships, my family, which I've never really written about before, which was really interesting, work and kind of prejudice and allyship and all of those kind of things that make up my life right now. I've kind of anecdotally shared how I've managed to navigate that, as well as kind of providing information at large on trans people right now, and the current situation, I've never generally never been so scared to have something put into the world. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. actually a bit terrifying. And you're and you know, you're young to have a memoir as well. I mean that's that in itself is is amazing. It's a little bit bizarre, isn't it? Because when I was yeah. a, when I was approached I was twenty one. So I don't know what that means, but Cheers. I think it means you're fucking smashing it. <laughs> I don't really I, I mean yeah, I'll I'll, I'll take that. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose in terms of trans and non-binary representation, I've heard you speak about how you didn't really see yourself represented in, in literature and in any meaningful way growing up. When I spoke to Florence about her book, uh, Women Don't Know You Pretty, she, she, she said she very much wanted to write a book which she wished she could have read when she was younger. Did you feel a similar way in, in, when writing your book? Absolutely. That was one of the biggest inspirations behind it was kind of thinking about what I would have needed and what I have noticed that when I you know, go on these speaking tours, when I speak to people, what they kind of are saying that they, they wish they had or what they need right now. So I've tried to lay it out in a way that is very multifaceted. Yeah. Like, 
people, people, some people may say that they think I'm funny. I might agree, but I tried, you know, I tried to bring a bit of my, more of my kind of my humor and my personality within it. Yeah. Because I was so aware that last year when I was writing it, so much of my work, the petition, the speaking tours was so heavy. Yeah. That I was like, actually, I want to share a part of my life that's actually a bit funny and a bit casual and, you know, it touches on the seriousness, but, you know, I can also talk about things I've never spoken about, like relationships or sex or just like, you know, things that I was I haven't really spoken about before. It was just, it was nice. It was freeing. It was very freeing. So obviously looking forward, we're living in this very weird, suspended state of reality um, due to the pandemic and the dreaded second wave, if it happens. But I think we're also living in such a fascinating and progressive time in, in terms of educating ourselves on things like black history and gender identity. I mean, what advice do you have to give to cisgendered people in particular wanting to be more active allies? I think it's about, you know, like with so many situations at the moment, it's about realising that your feelings shouldn't be barriers for stopping you from caring. I think often so many people can be like, oh, well, I feel attacked or I feel like this is, a, this is really personal to me. You know, cis people, they can often feel like they're being attacked. White people often, our initial reaction to when people say that institutions are racist and that everyone is racist, our initial reaction can often be that we are defensive. We're like, oh, no, no, no. When actually it's about just listening to what these people have to say Mm. and putting essentially your ego and your own privilege to one side and, and listening. I think... Even, you know, even though Ted, the TED Talk was amazing, I remember afterwards there was, like, a meet and greet in the foyer and I had lots and lots of people coming up to me and being like, thank you for delivering that talk, but when you say be an ally and when you say help us, what do you mean? Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, that's a, a sign that society is moving in ways that I don't like when people can't even sit and empathise and understand how to help another human being who's in distress or a group of people who are in distress you know why it just it baffles me slightly that you need to spell it out yeah to like really really make them understand and like I said in the talk my trans people are not here to be mouthpieces of our oppression um, constantly. And I think that's that's really important. And I would rather that cis people do the work alongside us, but also sometimes for us, do you know? Yeah, I think yeah. that's more important. Okay, well, yeah, so I've got one last question for you mm-hmm. because uh, you've been so generous with your time. And, that's okay. Yeah, you know, you've shared so much of your, your life and your experience. So I'd like to ask you the question which we ask each of our guests on the podcast, the podcast is called Things Worth Fighting For. What are the three things that you believe are worth fighting for if you had to pick three? I think my first one would be empathy. I think we need to fight more to change people's mindsets. Yeah. I think climate change. Yes. It's a massive one. That's a biggie. Because it's like all of these issues 
that we're discussing right now will not exist if our planet does not exist. And again, like I said before, with lots of all the right-wing kind of tendencies at the moment, everything is intertwined. And I think that's really important. I would also, I guess, end on freedom of expression. Mm. That's one thing that I, I think needs to change and we need to fight for. Jamie, I want to say thank you for giving your time so generously and I know that our fans and our listeners will be will continue to be inspired by you and the messages in your work and your book, which I can't wait to read. So thank you. It's been an absolute, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure and it means so much to have these conversations. So thank you. You are a dream. I've enjoyed this very much. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the one and only Jamie Windust. I think one of my favourite things about making this podcast series has been getting to know such genuinely inspiring and open people, open-hearted people as Jamie, and hearing them share their lived experience, which falls so completely outside the realm of my lived experience. I think allyship feels like such an incredibly potent and urgent force needed in the world right now. And like songs, I think storytelling has this incredible power to bring us right up front and close to the beating heart of these issues which are so warped and politicised in the society that we live in. So, yeah, I just, I, I really got so much from it. I think Jamie is amazing. So thank you for making it to the halfway point of this bumper edition of Things Worth Fighting For. I've been Blaine Harrison from Mystery Jets and this episode was brought to you by Acast and produced by Matthew Twaits. Cheers, Matt. Also, thanks to Isabel Offler as well as Kate Jones and Courtney Aisha Mortimer at UROC for all their invaluable help and coordination skills. We'll be back before you know it with part two of this Iway special double episode of The Pod. So until then, stay tuned and stay safe and I'll see you very shortly. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.